Well, after several months of pondering Paul's letter to the Galatians, we are coming near the end. Almost done. All Paul has left are some final instructions, which we're going to be looking at today, as well as a final invitation, which we'll look at next week. But first, Paul's final instructions, which you can find in Galatians chapter 6 and verses 6 to 10. Let us now hear God's word. Paul writes, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Well, at first sight, these final instructions can seem a bit haphazard. Provide for your teachers, don't be deceived, sow to the Spirit, and show good to others. On the surface, it looks as if Paul is simply rattling off some random instructions to round out the end of his letter. And certainly Paul can do that, as he does in some of his other letters. But is that what he's doing here? It will be odd if he was. You see, Galatians is one of the most tightly argued letters in the entire New Testament. So it'd be strange for Paul, after being so concise throughout the, all the other portions of this letter, to all of a sudden just throw out some random instructions. So the question is, what's the connection? What are the connecting links? Well, there are actually three of them. The first is this, the Holy Spirit, whom Paul mentions in verse 8. And if you've been with us throughout our studies, you'll recall that Paul briefly mentioned the Holy Spirit in chapters 3 and 4, and then when he gets to chapter 5, well, the Holy Spirit actually takes center stage, with Paul telling us that if we belong to Jesus, we've not only been made alive by the Spirit, but we're led by the Spirit. And because we are, we're to now walk by the Spirit so as to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the fact that Paul highlights the Spirit once more in his final instructions tells us that what he's doing here isn't haphazard. No, he's continuing to teach us about life in the Spirit. What's the second link? Well, it's the church, which Paul in verse 10 refers to as the household of faith. You see, the church isn't a mere collection of isolated individuals. Certainly not isolated strangers. No, it's a family. God's family. His family that's marked out not by a particular country or class or color. No, it's a family that's marked out by faith. Faith in Jesus alone. For through his death and resurrection, through giving us his spirit, Jesus has bound us together as a household. And in this household, we're no longer to live only for our individual self. No, we're to live for the glory of Christ and the good of one another in this household. But you see, this was a truth that was being neglected in the churches of Galatia. Currently, they were engaged in a lifestyle of conceit. 
one that heightened the individual self above the community. And in their arrogance, they began to bite and provoke one another. And because this is what was going on in these churches, Paul seeks to correct them by focusing them on three fruits of the Spirit. Remember, he listed the fruits there in verse 23 of chapter 5. But here, at the end, he focuses us on three. Number one, love. That's verse 15 of chapter 5. As we saw last week in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6, he focuses on gentleness. And now, in these verses, in these final instructions, what's the fruit he focuses us on? It's goodness. Goodness within the community. And so in these final instructions, Paul is really focusing continually on the overall agenda. One that's meant to teach us about life in the Spirit. What it should look like in particular, in the household of faith. But then there's the final connecting link. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the church, and then the last one is the principle. And it's the principle Paul states there at the end of verse 7. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now here we have an absolute principle that God has built into his world. And it's a principle drawn first from agriculture of how sowing and reaping go hand in hand. No sowing, no reaping. And added to this fact is that what one reaps is dependent on what one sows. For example, if you sow cucumber seeds, what can you expect to reap? Come on, we're smart people. Cucumbers. For no one ever sowed cucumber seeds and then reaped tomatoes. At the same time, if one sows a plentiful amount of good cucumber seeds, then they can expect an abundant crop of cucumbers. The reverse is true. If one plants a small amount of diseased cucumber seeds, then he can expect a meager crop of diseased cucumbers. This is an absolute principle in the world of agriculture. But it's also an absolute principle in the world of morality, and that's Paul's point. You see, by nature, we humans are sowers, and the seeds we sow are primarily our thoughts and actions. To be human is to sow some sort of seed in the way we choose to live, and the seed we sow determines the harvest we will reap. And this principle, because it's absolute, can't be avoided. That's why Paul prefaces it with the words, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. In other words, don't fool yourself into thinking that this principle doesn't apply to you, that somehow you can get around it, that what you sow in life won't determine what you reap. It will, because God can't be mocked. He can't be treated lightly. Literally, Paul says, you can't turn your nose up at God. You can't turn your nose up at God and His absolute principle that whatever one sows, that they will also reap. And primarily, it's this principle that gives these final instructions their coherence. For in these instructions, with the other connecting links in mind, the Spirit and the church, Paul seeks to apply this principle to three areas. Three areas in the household of faith. And the first area is Christ-centered teaching and learning. Look at verse 6 one more time. Let the one who's taught the word share all good things 
with the one who teaches. The New English Bible puts it this way, when anyone's under instruction in the faith, he should give his teacher a share of all the good that he has. Now, the phrase, the one who's taught, comes from the one Greek word, katechumenos. It may sound familiar to some of you. It's from where we get our word catechumen, meaning one who's under instruction. Later on in church history, this word referred to those who, in preparation for baptism, were taught the fundamentals of the faith. But here the word refers to the whole congregation. For a Christian household of faith is a household under instruction, under the instruction of the word, meaning the gospel the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the one who's set apart to give the primary instruction of the word to the congregation of catechumens is the pastor or pastors. The chief calling of a pastor is to faithfully and generously sow the seeds of the word in the field of the congregation. And in response to this word sowing, the congregation is to provide material harvest to their pastors. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9.11, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much to reap material things from you? Pastors, because they labor, emphasis on labor, because they labor in sowing the good word, should expect a crop of financial support from their congregations. That's Paul's word here. And what I want to add is, Above all, my charge, I would add Mitchell in this as well, is to sow and to keep on sowing the word, the gospel among you. The gospel of Christ that provides nourishment, the nourishment of his grace and truth, and at the same time provides protection. From what? Well, from false teaching, from false gospels of, say, legalism, or license, as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And you see, that's what was happening in the churches of Galatia again. False teachers had come in. They were troubling these believers. And therefore, what these young believers needed were faithful pastor teachers, teachers who could give the the needed time and energy to the pondering and proclaiming of the one true gospel. But in order for these pastor teachers to do this, they needed to be financially supported by those that they taught. For those under instruction, again, the whole congregation, are to share all good things with those who teach them. Now, putting it this way, Paul doesn't mean that the congregation's support of pastors is nothing more than a mere payment for services rendered. That's why he doesn't use the word pay. Instead, he uses the rich word share which in Greek is the word koinoneto, koinonia. It's the word that normally refers to the fellowship believers have in the Holy Spirit, and that's the point. The sowing of the word by the teacher and the support offered by those who are taught is actually a gift and demonstration of the work of the Spirit in the life of the household of faith. And it's one that's to be conducted in love the pastor laboring in love to teach the congregation and the congregation in love supporting the one who teaches them. And because Paul uses the word share or fellowship, he means not only financial sharing. 
He also means the sort of sharing that requires catechumens, you, to come ready and willing to be taught. For through the pastor's teaching and through your learning, well, this is how the Spirit transforms the household of faith, to put our hope and our trust in Jesus more and more. Now, while we're on the subject, it is a little weird to be the teacher teaching on the congregation, sharing all good things. Let me just add this as well, personally. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being a congregation that loves me, that loves Mitchell, that loves our family. Thank you for sharing your good with us. Thank you for supporting us financially. Thank you for receiving our teaching for sharing yourselves with us as you come ready to be taught, not by our opinions. I've got opinions, but they're not worth speaking. And especially here, it's not about my opinions. It's about sowing the good word among you so that by the Spirit, that word takes root in your hearts. As I teach and as you learn, we grow deeper in the reality of the gospel. The reality that alone, in alone, Christ saves. And by His Spirit, He renews and strengthens our hope. So the first area Paul touches on is Christ-centered teaching and learning in the household of faith. But then the second area is Christ-like living. Verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul now moves from Christ-centered teaching and learning to Christ-like living. And that makes sense. For the aim of Christ-centered teaching and learning is Christ-like living. And central to Christ-like living is the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 8, Paul returns to the topic that he introduced back in chapter 5, the flesh and the spirit. Mitchell touched on it a little earlier at the confession of sin. And in chapter 5, Paul likened the Christian life to a battlefield. And on this battlefield, the desires of the flesh, that is our fallen nature, and the desires of the Spirit, the one who gives us a new nature, war against each other on the battlefield of our lives. But now in chapter 6, Paul changes the metaphor from a battlefield to a large plot of farmland. And on this farmland, the flesh and the spirit are like two fields in which we sow our seed. And the harvest we reap is dependent on where and what kind of seed we sow. If we sow to our sinful flesh, we'll from that sinful flesh reap what? Corruption. But if we sow to the spirit, we'll from the spirit reap eternal life. The life of of being fully with Christ and being fully like Christ. But here's the thing, eternal life isn't just in the future. It certainly is the full reality of it. But eternal life doesn't just begin in the future. No, we actually taste and experience eternal life now, in part by the Spirit who dwells us in, within us. It's the Spirit who leads us to Christ. And Christ himself is eternal life. Eternal life that not only saves us from sin, but also saves us for Christ himself. That we might more and more, even now, become like Christ. Christ Christ-likeness is at the heart of eternal life. 
And at the same time, it's the very fruit of the Spirit. And because it is, chapter 5, we're to walk by the Spirit. And we're also now, chapter 6, to sow to the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit and sowing to the Spirit are basically the same thing. And in giving us these two images, Paul's wanting to stress that the Christian life can only be lived in the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit, who alone can transform us into the human beings the Father always desired, humans who live in His Son and who look like His Son. Making us like Christ is the work of the Spirit. But in the now time, in our present, until the day of glory, The desires of our sinful flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. Put another way, because the remnants of our fallen nature remain in us. Until the grave or until Christ returns, Christ-likeness doesn't come automatically. No, it requires us to fight by the Spirit, chapter 5, and to farm to the Spirit, chapter 6. How can we expect, think about it, How can we expect the fruit of the Spirit to blossom in our lives, the fruit of Christ's likeness to blossom in our lives if we don't sow in the field of the Spirit? Now, Paul gives us the two images, sowing to the flesh, sowing to the Spirit. Let's look at these real quickly. First, then, sowing to the flesh. And again, what is the flesh? It's not talking about our physical constitution. He's talking about our fallen nature, our nature that is not consumed with Christ, but is rather consumed with what? Self. Consumed with self. Self Self-pleasure. Self-pampering. Self-promotion. Self-protection and self-praise. The desire of the flesh is only for self. And when this desire is left unchecked, what does it naturally lead to? the works of the flesh that Paul listed back in chapter 5. And because our sinful nature remains within us, we're always prone to sow to the flesh, to give in to the flesh instead of crucifying the flesh, as Paul talks about there at the end of chapter 5. We're always tempted to pander to and pamper the flesh. And the seeds we sow again to the flesh are primarily our thoughts and our actions. In describing this, John Stott said this, every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, wallow in self-pity, or trust in our supposed righteousness, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. And sadly, sadly, many of us are sowing to the flesh every day. And then we wonder why we don't reap an abundant crop of Christ-likeness. What's the reason? Christ-likeness. If we want to grow in Christ-likeness, we can't continually sow to the self. It doesn't work that way. If we trust in ourselves, if we exalt ourselves, give in to our sinful passions and desires. And yes, all these things, the self, the flesh, It promises a harvest of life and satisfaction, doesn't it? Sin offers something. 
It says you will have life and satisfaction if you do this, if you give into this. But in reality, all the flesh can produce is a harvest of slow decay leading to ultimate corruption. Corruption personally, relationally, and eternally. For if we sow to the flesh, all we'll ultimately reap is the flesh that is dying and will die. All we will ultimately reap is the corruption of eternal death. And because this is so, Paul urges us, those who claim Christ, to sow to the Spirit. Now, like sowing to the Spirit, or sorry, like like sowing to the flesh, we sow to the Spirit primarily in our thoughts and actions. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that those who live by the Spirit... Remember, those who belong to Jesus have been made alive by the Spirit. Those who have been made alive by the Spirit are to continually set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Set their thoughts on the things of the Spirit. Now, where does the Spirit set His mind? On Christ. So to mind the things of the Spirit simply means to set your mind on Jesus. For the Spirit and Jesus always go hand in hand. They always go together. To sow to the Spirit then means intentionally and continually pondering Christ. Who Christ is. What Christ has done for you, for us. And what He calls us to be as His people. It means adoring and trusting Christ. Seeing Christ as the truly beautiful one who in the goodness of his sacrificial love gave his everything to have you as his own, not only now, but for all of eternity. Sowing to the Spirit means giving yourself to the desires of the Spirit. What does the Spirit desire? It's to show us Christ and conform us to Christ. But we don't just sow to the Spirit with our minds. We also sow to the Spirit by our actions, by engaging in certain practices or habits, which we're focusing on as a church. What sort of habits? Well, faithful participation in weekly worship, daily prayer and Bible reading, by engaging in continual repentance, the ways we've given in and sown to the flesh, and by seeking to be in intentional fellowship with our other brothers and sisters in the household of faith. Because the household of faith isn't simply a collection of isolated individuals. We are a family. This is what it means to sow to the Spirit. Sowing that leads to Christ-likeness, which again is eternal life. The life of being in communion with God that's to more and more develop until it becomes perfect in eternity. Sowing to the flesh leads to corruption. But sowing to the Spirit leads to abundant life, the life of full joy and satisfaction in and with our Maker and Redeemer. Now let me ask you, think for a moment about your own life, your thoughts, your actions on a continual daily basis. Where and what are you sowing? Are you sowing the corrupt seeds in the field of the corrupt flesh? Are you sowing good seeds? in the field of the good spirit. One more area. Paul gives us his instructions, and it's Christ-like service. Which, how does he define Christ-like service? 
doing good. Verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. Verse 10, let us do good. And here Paul moves from Christ-like living to Christ-like service. For growing in Christ-likeness leads to showing Christ-likeness to others. And notice Paul sticks with the absolute principle of sowing and reaping. For he writes, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you'll know that he was a realist, especially when it came to the hard work of Christian service, of showing good to others. He knew that Christian service requires struggle and sacrifice. He also knew that it doesn't bring immediate results. and Therefore, it requires the difficulty of patience, which can cause us to grow weary and want to give up. Some of you may be in that very place this morning. You no longer regard doing good as worth the effort. And Paul, knowing that we can all get to this place, encourages us at the end of these instructions to keep on, to keep on sowing good to others. And in putting it in these terms of sowing and reaping, he's reminding us that a farmer never sows and reaps on the same day, do they? That would be an amazing thing, but it's never happened. There's always lag time. There's always a delay between sowing and reaping. It takes time for the seeds to sprout up and produce a harvest. And in that time of waiting, a farmer can grow weary and even worried. And the same is true for us in the Christian life. We sow our seeds of good to others. We serve them. We help them. We pray for them. And yet we don't see quick results. And after a while... We grow weary, we're tempted to give up, to throw in the towel. But you know, there's a great difference between the natural farmer and the Christian. A natural farmer has reason to worry and grow weary, for his hope of a harvest not only depends on the hard work of sowing, it also depends on such things as the climate. One bad hailstorm can ruin a harvest, and there's nothing the farmer can do about it. But you see, as, a Christian, as Christians, our hope of a good harvest, which is tied to our faithful sowing of good to others, isn't ultimately dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God, who himself is always faithful. Hence the promise, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. In God's due season, he'll bring the harvest of our sowing good to others. And that's the reason we can persevere. Because our hope and our confidence is rooted in God who promises a harvest to those who sow good to others. But notice here, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what we'll reap, does he? We know that if we sow to the Spirit, the section before, we will reap eternal life. But here he sort of leaves it open. He simply assures us that we will reap if we don't give up. And in doing so, he's encouraging us in the reality that doing good will eventually bring good. We may not see it now, but we will see it for sure on the day when all things are made right and new. On that day, God will bring in the full harvest of our sowing good to others. But here's the thing, because our God is good, there are times when he allows us to see a portion of the harvest in our lifetimes. 
of how doing good to others does indeed bring good results, how it brings comfort to the downcast, relief to the destitute, welcome to the despised, of how our doing good may lead to another being changed by the gospel or give an unbeliever a newfound respect for the goodness of Christ's kingdom. We don't know exactly how God will bring the harvest, but we can trust Him to do so. And and one thing is for certain, that even when we don't see the harvest of doing good in the lives of others, we can trust that God is bringing the harvest of change to us as we follow this instruction. That as we do good to others... We are, however slowly, being changed in the process. For through doing good to others, God by His Spirit is transforming us more and more in Jesus' image. He's teaching us in the goodness goodness of being less selfish, which is by nature what we are, less self-centered and more satisfied in our God who calls us to show good to others. Because you see, God is the ultimate reason we do good to others. We show good to others because God first has shown good to us. The good of His love, the good of His service, the good of His forgiveness, the goodness of His promised future. In Christ, God has sowed the goodness of His grace in us so that we might sow the goodness of His grace to others. So then, Paul concludes, verse 10... As we have opportunity, what he means by opportunity is the time we've been given. He's not simply giving us an excuse. Why would they have the opportunity to show good? So I did it. No, the opportunity is the time that we have been given. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, why the clause, especially to the church? Well, because doing good begins at home. It begins in the family of the church. Because here's the reality. If we can't show good to our brothers and sisters in this household, we'll never show good to the community out there. It won't work that way. If we don't learn how to actually show this Christ-like goodness to one another, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we'll never show it out there. We'll certainly never be able to show it to our enemies. Seen in this way, the church is the training ground for our learning to do good in all of life. That's why it's foolish, as Mitchell said last week, to think that we can do without the church. We can't. For it's here that we're continually reminded of God's good to us in Jesus. It's here that we learn how to sow to the Spirit. It's here that we learn to do good to one another in this family, and it's from here that we are sent out into the world to do good to others for Jesus' sake. My friends, Paul has given us a gift in these final instructions. My prayer and my hope is that by His grace, we would hear them, we would heed them to the glory of God, and truly to the good of others, to the good of this community, to your neighbors, to your co-workers, to your unbelieving family members, that Christ might be honored as we look to him and trust in him for the harvest. Let us pray. Father, it's amazing that 
In such a short passage, there is so much. So much more could be said. And so I pray that these words would continually be sown in our hearts, that a great harvest of Christ's likeness would come to us and through us, to your glory and the good of others. Amen.